Hello, my name is Ben, and welcome to the show. Today, we shall be taking a deep dive into Boney M's Rasputin. This is the Deconstruct Podcast. Now, I don't think I've ever introduced myself formally on this show. Uh, my name is Ben. I am a sophomore computer science and uh, vocal education major at Ithaca College in New York. Um, you may have gathered that I go to Ithaca College by the fact that this podcast is distributed by WICB. I'm a member of their modern rock scheduling and also, and as soon as we can get back into the studio, I'll be hosting Breakfast with the Beatles with Sam Ives. Now, given the fact that I study classical music and I host a show about the Beatles, you may not expect that I would like a style as common and vulgar as disco, but truth be told, I like disco. I like it a lot. There's a lot of people who like that sort of music that say, you know, disco is not good music, but I'd say there's a lot to be learned from disco, and I think the reason why that I like disco so much and that why it's so worth looking into is that people who make disco make the best grooves that modern music has made. And the echoes of the rhythms that have been brought to pop music by disco can be heard in the works of Michael Jackson in the 80s all the way up to um, EDM music now that has a lot of its roots in how disco crafts its music. And I think that even though Boney M's Rasputin has bizarre lyrics about the Russian Revolution and instruments common to Russian folk music, that's still built on a bedrock of disco grooves and funk. And so I'd like to take you down that path with me today. And now to get some housekeeping out of the way. As usual, we cannot use copyrighted material in this podcast, so I will need you to supply the music on your end. Throughout the podcast, I shall be giving you timestamps in the music as to where you should be listening to at any given moment, and I will give you a few seconds so that you can pause, listen to that section of music, and come back so then we can discuss it. Unlike podcasts that I've done with other people, I will not be including beeps at the front and back of the timestamps, just because when I'm doing it with other people, I put in the timestamps after I'm done, so that I don't have to be constantly starting and stopping recording the podcast to find where those timestamps are. And since I'm recording this podcast on my own, the questions that I'll normally be posing to my guests, I'm going to pose to you directly. So when I ask you a question, I want you to pause the podcast and take a hot second to think about the answer before I give my two cents on it. And remember, listening to music deeply is all about using your ears. It doesn't matter what terms you ascribe to it as long as you understand the feeling that the elements of a song combined together make you feel. And finally, for this podcast, we shall be listening to the maxi or 12-inch version of Rasputin, just so we can have the whole of the piece that was originally intended. So with that in mind, let's begin. Now before we get into any of the musical content, I want to talk a little bit about Boney M, the group. Now, in the disco era of pop music, it wasn't uncommon for groups to have both a back end and a front end, and those would be mostly distinct from one another. And Boney M is no exception. 
The back end, the drive behind the music, is a German record producer named Frank Farian. The first single released by Boney M was released under a pseudonym. Frank Farian had in fact produced and created the whole piece entirely on his own. But he didn't want the spotlight for himself, so instead he created this pseudonym named Boney M. And since people want concert tours and dancing along with their music most of the time, Farian assembled a group of Caribbean dancers to be the front end of the group. The disconnect was so stark that not even half the group members recorded vocals in the studio. However, all four of the members did sing live, though accompanied by backing singers just in case they sounded off on a night. But this doesn't mean that the final product is any less valuable. In a way, I see it like animation, you know? You rarely see animators voicing the characters that they draw, and you rarely see voice actors drawing the characters that they voice. But we all accept that animation isn't a less art form because of this. So I don't think that performing disco should be any different. That being said, let's actually now dive into the actual musical content. We'll be starting in the first two seconds. Now, these first couple of seconds very easily establishes the tone that the whole song is going to have. Now, obviously, they're using, but specifically in this case, the drums are pitched a little bit lower on the spectrum of sound. Now, why would you think that they're choosing specifically to have the drums in one pitch range? My instinct is that they're leaving the sonic space, the range, to have other things come in later. In modern music production, it's very important to have isolated the space of sound both physically, as in where the sound is coming from, left, right, forward, back, up, and down, as well as the range of frequency. This is to have clarity in all of the elements that go into the production. Now, the rhythm of these drums, there's a very solid center of the beat. And what gives that center of the beat? To me, it's the accents that's added to the rolls that clearly indicate where the one, two, three, and four of the beat is. So then how does that tie into the theme of this piece being the Russian Revolution? Well, to me, I think it has sort of a very militaristic vibe in how the roles are attacked. It almost reminds me of when I was in high school and our high school had a dozen or so people strong bagpipe and drums core, and their traditions are very much rooted in the fact that pipers and drums would lead an army from Scotland into battle. And they would sound off each song with a and I think the similarities are obvious. Last thing about this section is that they let you know right off the bat they're going to be serious about the music production in this, but can you tell what element of the production is being added into this drum roll here? For me, it's the panning from left to right of the drums. It starts out in the center, then creeps towards the right, but then gets jerked over to the left. And it's this sort of messing with the production that happens throughout especially the first half of this production. Now I think we've exhausted that. Now let's move on to 
0 minutes and 2 seconds through 0 minutes and 10 seconds. As we continue, we get this new rhythm that's repeated throughout the first half of this track. So I'm about to ask a very broad question, so what stays the same about this and what changes? For me, the biggest change is just the rhythm, but everything else stays the same. You still got those swells happening, it still sounds vaguely militaristic, you still got the same drums doing it, and also, you may notice that it still has the panning from side to side, so still keeping that production. But as for the rhythm itself, I think you can break it down into two main parts. There's the da-da-da, and then there's the digga 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 now, depending on how well-versed you are in pop styles, the answer to the question I'm about to pose may be obvious, or you just may not have the vocabulary to answer it right, or this may just straight up be something that you've not picked up on, but I'm asking it so that you can pick it up. To me, it's clear that this is already a pop song and not just a well-produced militaristic sort of piece on its own. But if I was to ask you that, what elements could you point to to say that this is moving a little bit more towards the pop side? For me, I think it's the use of a hook in the drumline. If you don't know, the hook is the part of the pop song that people will come away remembering the most, the part that they'll be singing in their head. As an example, let's take Don't Stop Believing. I know it's a completely different song, but it'll get the point across. The chorus of Don't Stop Believing can also be broken down into two distinct parts. There's the Don't Stop Believing, and then there's the Hold On To The Feeling. I personally know a whole lot more people who could sing to you Don't Stop Believing than the rest of the chorus. And that's why they call it a hook. It's the thing that after you're done listening to a song, it's the thing that you're going to remember, especially after a first listen. And this drumline is no exception. You have the hook of da da da, and then the filler of digga 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 digga. And as with Don't Stop Believin', the hook is short, simple, concise, and to the point, where the filler is just kind of there to fill it in. It doesn't really matter. So, you know, you can get a little bit more jazzy or flamboyant with that section as long as you don't let it overpower the hook. This even becomes more apparent at 0 minutes and 10 seconds through 0 minutes and 17 seconds. In this section, it's clear that they're adding in claps to accent the hook. And since they're starting to change things about the hook, your attention is going to be pulled toward the hook, and it's still going to be the thing that you remember afterwards. And this sort of ramping up of the hook happens again at 0 minutes and 17 seconds through 0 minutes and 33 seconds. Here we bring in guitars for the first time. So what sort of tone color are they going for in the guitars here and why? Well, to start on the production side of things, the guitars are clearly distorted. They're not a clean guitar sound. And also you might notice there's a little bit of reverb at the tail end of things. You can notice that especially at the end of this phrase where the guitars are kind of dying out in the soundscape. And in the way that the guitars are structured harmonically, they're also in perfect fifths mostly. Again, to bring up the harmonic series, the harmonic series is the idea that for every note out in the wild, there's another series of notes that help to define the quality of the sound. And 
The second and third harmonics sound what we call in music a perfect fifth. Now, guitars use this to their advantage, especially when they're distorting their sound. When guitarists add a perfect fifth in their notes above the root note, it beefs up the sound, especially if you're distorting the sound to create more harmonic content in there. And the guitars are playing the hook, but with one key exception. The second time through out of every two times, they're adding in a da-da, so da-da-da-da-da. Because you don't really want to be playing the same thing over and over again. You want to be changing things up so that people don't get bored. And by using those last two notes, they're also adding in a bit of harmonic progression by briefly moving away to the four to add a little bit more tension in the harmonic progression where there hadn't been any harmonic progression before. And as we move to 0 minutes and 34 seconds through 0 minutes and 36 seconds, we're given a little bit more of this drum beat on its own so that we have a little bit of time to prepare for 0 minutes and 37 seconds through 0 minutes and 51 seconds. Now, in isolation, many of listeners without perfect pitch will think that these were the exact same thing, but then put together, you'll notice that the second part is higher than the first part. By raising it up a whole step like they've done, they're adding a bit of brightness, a little bit of straining, and a little bit of tension, just to make it all a little bit more exciting. And then once this is done, it abruptly moves at 0 minutes and 51 seconds through 0 minutes and 53 seconds to a new drum beat. Now, can you name or recognize the drum and or drums that are used in this section? Well, for starters, there's a snare drum that's playing a very militaristic sort of drum pattern. And if you're paying attention throughout this section, you'll notice that there's two main drum patterns happening here. There's and then there's Now, both of these are very clearly militaristic, but why would you think that the producer wanted to use only two drum patterns on this? To me, I think it's out of practicality. You don't really need to spend too much time worrying about how many drum patterns there are, how interesting it's going to get, as long as you have a groove down, especially in this style. But then also, this could be my imagination, but I feel like there's a lower drum in there, perhaps a kick drum in there. And to me, they're just hammering out the beat going like. So as we move on to zero minutes and 53 seconds through one minute and eight seconds, these drums are added upon by guitars. And if you notice in the lower register, there's also a bass going. Let's start with the guitars. So my first question is, does this guitar part have more flowy sort of leaps and jumps and all this sort of classical folksy sort of stuff? Or is it sticking more to a modernish style that has more short but less varied notes? Well, to me, I think it's the former. I think it has a lot of more flowing lines to it. And it's especially relevant at the start when you have this da-da, you have this 5-1 that's super common in older styles to give a bit of gravitas to the downbeat. And then from there, rising up the da-da-da-da-da, landing on that third above the root, and then expanding upon that 
da 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 to keep something similar as the harmony moves under it as it goes to the flat 6 major chord. Then there's this da 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 that brings us nicely into the 5 chord, which is then expanded upon into da 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 as the harmony shifts under it from a 6 chord to a 4 chord, which in classical theory has the same sort of function. It wants to move to the dominance of the tonics, that being the 5 to the 1, and that's reflected in the melody by going da 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 being a leading tone that settles nicely into the 5. And you may notice a sister of that melody line in the left ear. Now, what precisely do you think is happening in that melody line in the left ear? Well, it's stacked a little bit higher in pitch, precisely a third above it, so that no matter where the melody goes, the harmony is always being more or less in tune with it. And to wrap things out, the bass is doing the rhythm that the kick drum has already been laying down, just doing this doom, 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 doom. And it's also clarifying where the root of each chord is supposed to be, even if there's not all of the notes filled in, you can still get a basic idea as to where the root is supposed to be. Then moving into 108 through 124, it's doing what the opening guitar bit did and moves up a whole step to add more tension and more brightness. But this time around, there's also a new instrument being added. Can you tell what it is? To me, I think it's a vocal line, but whether or not it's a real vocal line, I can't really tell. Because to me, the main way that I can tell the difference between a real vocal line and something that a synth made is whether or not it has too much sort of <sighs> to it. Because a real vocal line will have a small amount of that, but in reality, it's not really noticeable amongst the pitch that's actually being produced in somebody's mouth. Whereas synthesizers try to overcompensate on that to hide the unreality of the sound that they are making. And in this case, I think there's just too much <sighs> to be able to say that it's purely a vocal line. Maybe they've added in a bit of white noise in there just to make it have that sort of ring to it. But I think it's more likely that it's a synth line. And at 1 minute and 24 seconds through 1 minute and 27 seconds, we're left with the snare drum again, which then transitions us back into 1 minute and 27 seconds through 1 minute and 45 seconds. To me, this section acts as a bit of a palate cleanser. It reintroduces us to something that we already know this duck, 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 so we can prepare for what they're about to throw at us next. And that comes in at 1 minute and 47 seconds through 1 minute and 53 seconds. And at this stage, we are introduced to a new instrument entirely. Now, firstly, using the horn bostel sax system that we've used in a couple episodes so far, I'm not going to repeat it. I'll let you look it up for yourself this time. Can you tell me what the general classification of this instrument is? And then could you tell me what instrument does this most sound like to you? 
To me, it's clearly a stringed instrument. It's got that distinctive pluck of the strings and then that quick decay afterwards. And then to me, it also kind of sounds like a steel guitar. But at the same time, it has a little bit more of a rounder sound. In this case, it's an instrument used a lot by Russian folk music, and the name for it is a balalaika. It's quite similar in construction to a guitar itself, but the main difference is that it has a bit of a triangular body shape as opposed to a guitar's eight-ish shape. And one notable thing about this instrument is that it has a very short delay, which means that the sound cuts off quite quickly, and I think it's very useful in making good disco sound. If you know disco well enough, you'll know that guitars are rarely used for anything longer than brief snippets of time. They're used mostly to fill out the areas around the beats and the division of the beats, and they do that job here in place of the guitars. The line that they're doing starts with a ba-da-ba to lead us nicely into the downbeat, then another ba-da, again leading us down to the downbeat, but then there's this ba-da-ba-da-ba-da, and I think it's that little ba-da-ba that really creates the thing that you want to dance to. There seems to be somewhat of an agreement among musicians that the best kind of music to dance to is the kind of music that throws you off the beat. And so you need to dance in order to rectify that changing of the rhythm. And here is no exception. The first two little licks establish the downbeat as accented, but then you have this ba-da-da that has the apex on the second subdivision, the E of one. And if you don't have a pulse going either in your head or in your hips, you might think that the ba-da-da is the downbeat, and we just can't have that happen in our minds or in the musicians. So our bodies fill in the gaps for us and make us want to dance to it. And these elements are once again added on to from 153 to 209. Now let's start out with the drums in this section. The drums have clearly changed character, but my question is, how do you think these drums are being played? Do you think they're being played with sticks, or do you think they're being played by hands? Well, to me, it would seem like these are being played by hands. The sound is very similar, if not the rhythm, then the texture is very similar to West African drumming, in my opinion, because you got a lot of these hand drums with sort of, I don't know what the term for it is, but sort of gravelly, sort of wooden surfaces almost, and also wooden bodies. To me, these feels almost like bongos or congas or something of that manner. And the drums are doing what disco drums do best. They're just hammering out a... Just laying down the beat and making sure that it's grooving. The bass is doing the same thing as well. It's doing the same thing that it had been doing earlier, which is going duh, 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 duh. Just holding down the root and also the beat. Before we move on to the balilakas, I want to see if you can notice if there's any elements that are longer than just brief little snippets of time. 
I think you have to strain to hear it, but I think that there's almost an organ sort of quality happening somewhere about left mid-channel. They're just sustaining the chords that the bass is outlining for them, and I think it's just a little bit of a textural thing that is really neat once you notice it. So then we move on to the main melody, and this melody will be the center of focus throughout the rest of the track. First, we start out this ba-da-bang, dang, dang. That's outlining those perfect fifths, and it's a really strong opening, in my opinion. Then it expands upon that fifth with da-da-ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Then the melodic mind moves away from the tonic into the four with this da-da-da-da-da. And then it swiftly moves through the five and the one chords with this da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Finally, to end off this section, do you think that there's any elements that would heighten the folksy sort of nature of this disco piece? Well, to me, it's the melodic embellishments outside of the main melody that you hear later on in the track. Whereas in the melody later on, the ending bit goes da 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 this melody goes da 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 if this makes sense to you, then I want you to take a moment to think of why having these sorts of melodic embellishments would add to the folksiness of this melodic line. As usual, I don't know what your answer is going to be because you're out there in the audio world and I can't directly respond to you, but for me, it's more of a historical context. There's only one musical tradition across the world that specializes in harmony as much as the European system, and that is the European system. That is anything descended from classical counterpoint, the pitting of melodies against one another to create harmony, which is the origin of modern harmony. But in other parts of the world, that sort of interplay between voices was rare at best, and so in order to create complexity, they would create these intricate melodic lines that had twists and turns and all sorts of decorations and it feels like what they're trying to do here is capture a little bit of that from the way the rest of the world creates melody. Then we move from there into a new section from 209 to 224. So again I'm going to ask in terms of the instruments that are in this section what changes and what stays the same? Well, the fundamental groove, to me, stays the same through the bass and the balalakas. But then we bring more emphasis to the main melodic line by switching it over to the vocals for the first time. But strangely to me, it starts the vocal line in the lower male bass register, and then it switches up to the three female singers, or rather two female singers in this recording. Now, think to yourself, why would they have done that in this specific circumstance in the vocal line? And now, folks, for the moment you've all been waiting for, I don't know! But I can say one thing. It doesn't sound quite right if you keep it all in the same range. Just imagine in your head if they, the female singers were singing the entire line. It just wouldn't sound right to me. But that's just possibly because we've been conditioned to think that the version that we hear is right. So 
Your guess is as good as mine in this case. And finally, there is one last element that switches. Where before we had been driving the groove with these sort of bongo conga sort of instruments, now they switch to snare drum. Now, why do you think in this case they switched from those instruments to snare drum? To me, adding in that snare adds in a bit more tension. It's almost like how in electronic dance music, they cut off the low end slowly and slowly until you reach the, when you've almost hit the bass drop and then you bring everything back in just so you can have that satisfying thud. And I think it's the same idea here. Where the instruments before, there was a lot more low end to hear, the snare drum tends to sit a little bit higher in the range, so it keeps on moving things up in range. And we'll cross the bridge when we get to it that the bass drops. Well, maybe not the bass drops, but the equivalent in disco music. After all, EDM is basically just electric disco anyways. Then in this section from 225 to 240, we add in a new vocal melodic line. And I want you to take a few minutes to just think through in your head how it works as a unit. To me, this follows an A-B-A-C pattern, although an argument can be made for A-B-A-B-prime. As we discussed in episode 3, you assign the same letter to similar melodic fragments. So in this case, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da would be the section A, and we're calling it A since it's the first letter of the alphabet and it's the first little melodic motif. And it's a simple one, you know, just rising, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Starting on the tonic, ending on the tonic, but still going up and down to give it some shape. And then there's this B section, that being the second section, and therefore the second letter in the alphabet. Going up to the second scale degree, da-da, to emphasize the fifth of the dominant chord. And then doing a little turn on that, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And as we know, the dominant always wants to resolve to the tonic. And then we once again get the tonic phrase, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So that would be A. And then finally, we end off in the C section. Like the B section, it starts on the fifth of the dominant to indicate going somewhere. But instead, it resolves sooner, going da-da-da-da. Tonic. So then as we move through 2 minutes and 40 seconds through 2 minutes and 56 seconds, there's that idea of shifting the sonic palette further up in range again as the bass drops out, the kick drum drops out, leaving us with basically just balalaka and snare. But something important to note here is that the balalaka line doesn't stay with the da 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 in its exact form throughout the whole thing. It does shift a little bit to indicate harmonic motion. On the last time through of each four, it goes da 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 da, and you may notice that the da 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 perfectly outlines the one and the five of the dominant. So there's still a little bit of harmonic motion left in there even though it's still just one melodic line. So in this final bit of opening material, which so far has taken up nearly half of the track, there's one last thing that gets layered in, just these haze. And I don't think I've mentioned this before, but those haze have such a club vibe. In the audience, definitely, it's something that 
people can sing along to and get hyped with about. As we move into the main bit of the song, it's a good way to transition everybody in to get them hyped. Now, at precisely 3.11, something odd happens. Can you tell what happens? If you said there was a key change there, you're pretty much right, but why would they do a key change down? Well, I'll let you in on a little secret. That distance that they jumped was not a perfect semitone, that being one of the notes in the chromatic scale. It seems like it went almost down half a step, which indicates to me that they recorded one section at a slightly different tempo than the other. Now, in modern recording software, you can get away with changing the pitch and tempo of a track independently, but before computers were available to the masses, and especially computers that could synthesize music, that just wasn't in the cards. You could only change the pitch by changing the speed and vice versa. If you have old recording equipment or if you still listen to vinyl, that's something you might have run into that if you play something slower, it'll change the pitch and drop it lower. The same is true in recording studios. So what that indicates to me is that they recorded the different sections at different speeds, but then when they wanted to stitch them together, they sped, I think, probably the opening section up a little bit, so they sacrificed pitch in favor of keeping a steady beat. And I think in this case, it pays off. You know, you can still headbang without losing a beat. So as we move into 3 minutes and 11 seconds through 3 minutes and 19 seconds, there's one major element that is added in that indicates that this is the start of the disco section. Can you tell what it is? Well, it's the guitars. We haven't had proper guitars in this track yet at all, and now they're being added in. It's clear that we're now moving into the disco section. And the tone on the guitar isn't that fancy. I think it's just a straight input with no, no frills added. They're once again playing those power chords, those fifths and octaves, but in this case, they're playing a bit of a different melodic line there. I want you to go through and try to listen to those notes that the guitar is playing and see if you know that sort of melodic figure from literally anywhere else. The reason I ask that is because it's something that has been called the lament mantra since classical times, and it's still widely in use in popular music today. And the idea behind it is really simple. It starts at the tonic, and then it moves down, and then moves down, and then moves down to the dominant, and with each moving down, it's heightening the tension just a little bit so that when you get to the dominant and then resolve back to the one, it's a really satisfying conclusion. Then as we move from 319 to 327, we properly add in all of the elements you need for a good Euro disco track. Of all the new elements, can you place which is where in the sonic space? I, To me, there's at least one in the left, one in the center, and one on the right. To start out, the drums are doing a simple rock drum beat where the bass is on the 1 and 3 of the measure, the snare is on the 2 and the 4, and the hi-hat's just hammering out those 8th notes. 
And you know it's a really good groove. Why change something that already works? In the left and right channel specifically, there's also new guitar parts. Now, what is it about these guitar parts that's different? Why are they added in in such a way? Well, you may notice that the guitars are never quite on the beat. They're always a little bit before or a little bit behind or on the off beats, but never quite squarely on one all of the time. And in this case, it doesn't really matter in what order the off beats or the coming in later or coming in earlier happens. What matters is that they're on the offbeat. Like what happened with that balalaka line at the start of the song, the offbeat sort of things creates this sort of wonky groove that you want to resolve with your body by dancing. And that's the core element, I think, of why disco music is so danceable is because there's all of these elements that you need to resolve with your body in order to enjoy it. But then once you do resolve it, it feels really good. And then finally, there's a string line, and I'm pretty sure it's just violins and maybe even viols thrown there for a laugh, but to me, the strings are the connective tissue in a disco track, while all of the other elements are playing short and light stuff, the strings are usually playing longer stuff, and they're usually keeping things held together. But even when they're not, still, the sound of it kind of ties the whole thing together nonetheless with something a bit more lyrical and flowy. As is the case in this particular section. You start out with the da 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 da, outlining the tonic and then rising up to the fifth of the tonic. And then going da da da, creating a little bit of an embellishment on the tonic. And then da da da, rising up to the root of the dominant and then falling back down to ba 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 and then from 327 to 341 you get this neat little mix of the balalakas doing their uh fiddly little melody and the strings nicely doing it over top creating this sort of balance between the folksy and the disco-y sort and then finally at 341 just a little bow from the strings just to i don't know add a little levity to the whole thing. And then from 341 to 349, the strings let out and let the vocal line come in nice and cleanly. And then, are you noticing anything at 349 that is tying some things together? To me, it's the string line. They're going ba da ba ba da ba da 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 da. Like I said earlier, the strings are the connective tissue that sustains over the more short stuff. And especially in these cases when they don't have much of a foreground position, but they have a counter melody position. That's what they do best in disco tracks. Then at 357, do you notice anything being added back in that wasn't there the first two lines of the melody. In the left ear, I'm noticing the balalakas coming back, and I didn't even realize they were gone in the first place until they had come back, but now that they've come back, it adds a little bit more variety to the whole thing, in my opinion, and 
adds more tension by adding in more notes, by creating more syncopation, which makes you want to dance even more. And so the rest of the verse is kind of stuff that we've already talked about. The only major difference is that the strings are doing different things, but that's just noodling around on the pentatonic scale, which the one, two, three, five, and six, which are the most in tune elements. So just by noodling around with those, you can't really go wrong. And so I'm thinking that's what um, he did. So then let's skip ahead a little bit to this section from 411 to 420. The one that everybody who's younger than 25 knows this rah, rah, Rasputin. But what is it about this section that makes such a good chorus? Because why is it that everybody likes to sing along with it? Well, there's obviously the rah, rah, and that gets attention very easily but then also throughout the rest of this whole piece there's been a lot of moving lines in the forefront a lot of short notes in the forefront and now it's being stripped back a little bit to give a little bit more length on the individual notes and if we dive a little bit deeper into the section you start out with this rah rah which is deathly on the tonic and then you move away to Rasputin and that's a flat seven it's not in the major scale but what it is in is the flat three and even though it's not a chord in the major scale or built on one of the major scale chords it's the voices still all nicely resolve down to a four chord so you got this Da, 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 da. And then you can also have a da, 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 da. and finally da, 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 da. and then when you put all those together it resolves quite nicely onto a four chord which then resolves back down to the tonic with this da, ba, ba. and one cool thing that I noticed that they were doing on that was that they were adding in claps on the if one hook at raw rob wasn't enough you now have another hook in the claps that people can do along with if not sing necessarily then clap along and then there's this and those three notes outline the moving from the subdominant which is the four chord to a tonic and then taking that tonic taking it as a four chord and then resolving that back down to one in plagal motion and in this case i don't think you need to add any more embellishments on top of it because you still do want it to be memorable so you don't want too much things that people have to memorize and so you can still get some good motion out of those three notes and then to end off this first section of the chorus the strings are going and you know they could have said but that's a little bit like morse code for my tastes and so if you go it adds a little bit of an emphasis on that beat there so now that we've got all the basic elements, we can just copy them and repeat them. 
as long as you don't put them immediately right next to each other, nobody's gonna have that much of a long-term memory in order to say, hey, that's too repetitive, that's the same, why should we be dancing to this? Sometimes you don't need to make things complicated, you can just copy and paste, and it works. And then we get another strain of the verse, another strain of the chorus, but then it transitions into something a little bit more low-key. As always, I'm going to ask, what instrumentation are we looking at here? So, let's start out with the obvious one. There's a guy just talking, and it sounds almost like he's a radio announcer of some sort. And this was just a guy that the producer knew from the army, and so he just came in, recorded his lines, and bailed. But what's the vibe that they're trying to give off by doing this here? Like I said, it's almost like a radio announcer. He's trying to give off the air that he's giving some important bit of information. And in the lyrics, yeah, that's true. Because up to this point, everybody had been loving him. But now, in these few words, the tides change against Rasputin. And they're now going to kill him. Let's work the rest of these instruments from the ground up. The drums are hitting mostly the lower drums, mostly toms and kick drum, but it's still keeping that sort of umpa sort of feel that a normal drum beat has. The bass is just holding out long notes for measures, only changing when the chord needs to change. And the same thing goes for guitars, but in this case, it I think... It would be a little bit too much to have a guitar going, duh, and so instead they arpeggiate up so they're not playing all the strings at once, but they're playing them in quick succession going, da 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 da. And the violins are holding everything together as they always do by doing these sort of soaring lines, da 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 da, etc. And in this entire track, there is literally only one more thing left. And that is, a few seconds later, there's a guitar that goes, and it's a little bit distorted, but other than that, there's not really a whole lot to this song. But regardless, what it does have gets repeated enough times so that you don't need to worry about needing new things. You could just keep on doing the old stuff, like I'd already mentioned. And also, to reiterate, if it works, don't try to fix it. It works. And to round out everything, I want to ask you once again to go back through the entire song, listen to it again, try to look out for those details and see how they influence you and, you know, how they make you want to dance. Now, we've come to the end of the podcast, and this would normally be the point where I ask my guest if there's anything that they would like to plug. But... This time, there is something that I would definitely like to plug. In a couple of months, I will be releasing an album. It doesn't have a name yet, it doesn't much have anything yet, but it does need funding in order to make it happen. So I am going to leave a link to a GoFundMe in the description to this podcast. So if you want to help me bring something new and beautiful into the world then you can help me do it by contributing to the fundraiser. And as always, we'll leave links to everything else that I do in the description. 
So, this has been the Deconstruct Podcast. I have been Ben, and I will see you next time.